You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. If you want to turn to John chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 35 through 40 today. So John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one of the hardback black Bibles there in the back of the room. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hand as we read it together. It's on page 892 in those hardback black Bibles if you're using one of those. So John 6, 35 through 40. We are beginning a new series today called For This Reason I Have Come. And in the Gospel of John, uh, at least seven different times, Jesus uses a phrase similar to this, for this reason I have come, and he tells us about why he came. And so beginning today and for the next three weeks, we're going to look at four different passages in John where he tells us why he came. And today we're going to see that Jesus came because it was the Father's will for the Son to save all who would believe. This was God's will for him. There are all sorts of reasons why God's people wanted Jesus to come at Christmas, but Jesus wants to help them see that their central need, that the the thing that they need more than anything, he came to meet in himself. And the same could be said for us, really. We have all sorts of things that we're looking for at Christmas. We have needs that we want God to meet, and we should be honest about those needs with ourselves. But if God came in the person of Jesus, what if he came to meet a deeper need than we are often able to see or acknowledge to ourselves. And so we'll, we'll discover more about that in our passage. John 6, 35 through 40. I'm going to read it if you want to follow along. It will appear on the word, or the words will appear on the screen behind me as well. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us as your people. We thank you that in it we see here why Jesus came. And so would you help us to understand that? God, would you give us eyes to see and to behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There might be no worse feeling than the feeling of being unwanted. Studies have shown that children born to parents who did not want them have significant ongoing mental health concerns because feeling rejected by your parents will leave someone feeling unlovable and that no one might ever want to love you. Consider with me Billy whose parents got divorced just after he was born and his father took no interest in his life. 
barely even acknowledged his existence. And this abandonment caused feelings of pain and insecurity for him as a young boy. Billy's mother uh, eventually got remarried and this new husband adopted Billy as his own son. And on the one hand, it was an incredible feeling of acceptance for him to be adopted. But when he went to court for the adoption proceedings, it also reminded him of his father's rejection. And this memory was seared into him as a young boy, that at the age of 10, he was at the courtroom to get adopted and his birth father signed the consent to adoption, terminating his parental rights And for Billy, this was a legal document confirming his rejection. And this process was made even worse by his birth father looking at him and telling him how happy he was to be rid of his son. Billy is or will be running from that rejection for the rest of his life. Not that healing is not possible, but those feelings of being unwanted will leave a scar for him. Billy's story is more of a dramatic example, but for all of us, one of the most basic fears that we have is one of being rejected, especially by someone who knows us intimately, someone who should love us, like a spouse or a parent or a longtime friend. To be fully known and then rejected is one of the deepest wounds you will ever experience. And because we know our need, We know our own failures and our own frailty. We can struggle to believe that God wants us. We can find it difficult to embrace the reality that God wants us. We can spend our lives bracing for his rejection. But what I want you to hear in the sermon today, there's the message of the sermon, is that you are more needy than you could possibly know, and God wants you more than you could dare to dream. The reality is that we actually underestimate our need and we also struggle to embrace God's love for us. Our outline together will be threefold. The first, we'll see the unity of father and son in coming. Second, the unity of father and son in providing. And then third, the unity of father and son in saving. So first, the unity of father and son in coming. The phrase that we're kind of isolating throughout our Advent series shows up in our passage in verse 38 where Jesus says, for I came down from heaven, for this reason I have come, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is going to tell us what the Father's will is in verses 39 and 40, but I want to focus here just on this phrase right now and two things in particular about this statement. The first is that there was agreement in Jesus' coming. There's agreement between the Father and Son in Jesus' coming. And this corrects for us this incorrect assumption that we make sometimes about the way that God relates to us as people. And here's how this can sometimes go. We we might say to ourselves, you hear someone say, Jesus is loving, compassionate, and kind, but God the Father is holy, wrathful, and vindictive. People might say it this way, the God of the Old Testament is harsh and judgmental, but the God of the New Testament is gentle and gracious. Has anyone ever heard a statement like that? Anybody ever heard somebody say something like it? Yes, we've all heard something like that. We know that those statements are not entirely true, but sometimes we don't always know why. These statements, though, they misunderstand really the entire message of the Old Testament. From the moment that sin entered the world, God was at work to redeem that which was broken. However, even if we know that God the Father is not just cold and vindictive, these ideas can leak into our minds and contaminate the way that we see God. As if God the Father doesn't really want us. 
that our salvation was something maybe he did begrudgingly because the son made him do it or begged him to do it. If you've ever watched a child expertly pit his father and mother against one another, then you might even have an idea of how we can sometimes view the relationship between father and son. God the father and God the son. Like a child who knows that their father and mother are not always of the same mind about some things. We can develop that sort of paradigm between God the father and God the son. See them as divided on things. But that's not the picture that the Bible gives us at all. The father and son are of one mind. They are in agreement about the coming of Christ into the world, about the work of salvation. And when you interact with Jesus and you experience his compassion and his care, you can also be confident in the father's compassion and his care for you as well. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John 6.38 is one of the places where we can go to see that this is not the case, that father and son are not divided. Jesus came to do the will of the father. And the will of the Father is that Jesus would guarantee the salvation of all who would believe. Jesus came because of God's absolute commitment to save that which was lost. The Father and Son are united in the coming of Christ. And this is not, not just, their, and it is not just their unity that we see in verse 39, but we also see that the Son obeys the Father. We see the Son's obedience in Jesus' coming. This phrase from verse 39 here of Jesus, it's consistent with his own prayer in the garden before he dies. As he's heading to the cross, he is in the garden sweating blood at the weight of, about, of what he's about to endure on the cross, and he prays to God the Father. And he, as he's praying, he's saying, if there's any other way to accomplish what is about to happen, if there's any other way for the redemption of the world to happen, then let this cup pass from me. But ultimately, he's saying, not my will, Jesus prays to the Father, but your will be done. This is not begrudging obedience. Jesus endured the cross with joy because he and the Father are united in this work. They're both passionate and committed to doing what was required to secure the rescue of all who would believe. And like Jesus, we are encouraged to pray similar words in the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever noticed the similarity of these phrases? We're encouraged to pray, Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And these are not always easy words to pray. Let's be honest, because in saying them, we're giving up control. In praying them, we trust God's will is good for us and good for our neighbor. This has been the prayer that we've prayed together as a church over and over again this past year. Father, your will be done. Not our preferences, not our plans, but your will. As we've taken this step to replant our church together, we've had to trust that God's plan is good. As we have prayerfully made the decision to sell our building, we have submitted ourselves to the Father's will in humility and in trust. As we've patiently walked through our process and our transition over the summer, we have trusted God to provide for us. And here's what I've watched happen among us. Through all the trials, I've watched a church grow in resilience together. Through all the decisions, I have watched a church grow in unity together. Through all the transitions, I've watched a church grow in its commitment to one another. Through it all, I have seen that God's will is good, and it is good for us. And when you struggle to trust that that is true, look to the Father's will in sending the Son. Their unity in, in the coming of Christ is a mark of God's faithfulness. 
And whether it's in our work of replanting or whether it's in a job transition or you're walking, along your, walking alongside your child through pain and suffering, we can pray with confidence, God, your will be done. We can trust his will for us because it was God's will to send his son to save all who would believe. And the father and son are united in the coming of Christ. We also here see the unity of father and son in providing. This is our second point this afternoon. Jesus' statement in verse 38 comes within this much larger interaction between Jesus and this crowd of people. At the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds this massive crowd with nothing more than five loaves and two fish. And the crowd recognizes that Jesus was someone of significance. See, God's people, they had been expecting someone to come. They knew someone was coming, a prophet sent by God to save his people. And they were right that Jesus was this man whom God had promised. However, they did not fully understand what he came to do. Some thought that Jesus was going to be a political leader, that he was going to raise up an army and kick out these foreign nations from their land. And so in verse 15 of John 6, they tried to seize Jesus by force and turn him into their king. And Jesus, perceiving what was happening, he withdrew quietly and went up onto a mountain by himself. Well, the next day, the crowds are out looking for Jesus again. And so they find him on the other side of the sea. They wanted something from Jesus. But this time, rather than a king, they're wanting him to perform a miracle. They wanted more bread. So they started to talk to him about a time that God had provided bread for his people in the desert. There's a story in the Old Testament about a time when God provided bread called manna in the wilderness. And so the crowds, they knew this story well, and they're challenging Jesus and his identity. And they're saying, well, God gave our fathers bread in the desert. What sign will you give us? They wanted a sign from Jesus. And so in verse 35, where I started reading earlier, Jesus begins to correct the crowd's misunderstanding of what they actually needed most. See, some thought they needed a king who would overthrow the Romans. Others thought they needed miracles as a sign to reveal God to them. And still others thought they needed bread to fill their bellies. But they did not understand how needy they actually were. Like us, they were far more needy than they could possibly know. And so in response to all of this, Jesus says that he can give them something that will truly satisfy their needs. And in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying that even more basic than your need for bread and water, you need to be reconciled to God. That the God against whom you have rebelled again and again, he wants you. And he has come to satisfy your deepest needs forever. When you eat bread, you're going to be hungry again pretty soon. When you drink water, you're going to be thirsty again in a short amount of time. And like our bellies, our souls, they hunger to be satisfied. And we find ourselves perpetually unsatisfied. But in Christ, your soul will never hunger again. And into our minds rings these famous words from St. Augustine's Confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Jesus came to give them something better than bread, better than miracles, better than a king or a monarchy. Jesus came to give them himself. And like the crowds, 
We know that we are needy, but we underestimate just how needy we really are. If I was able to sit down with each of you this week and have a conversation with you, which I'd love if I could do that in one week's time, not, not possible, but if I could and ask you, what are the things that you need most this Christmas season? What is it that you're longing for? I'd get a different answer from each one of you. Some of you would point to financial needs. Christmas is expensive. Life is expensive. 18 months of rising inflation and rising costs is catching up. Budgets are tighter. I read this week that credit card bills are higher than they've been in years. Financial needs are real. We feel them. And they are one of the number one drivers of what has become known as post-holiday blues. According to the National Alliance of Mental Illness, 64% of people report being affected by holiday depression. And it is most often triggered by financial, emotional, physical, relational stress in the holidays. See, we eat more and we sleep less. We spend more and we pray less. And in the midst of a holiday season that's meant to help us focus more on Jesus, what so often happens is that we get through it and we feel further from him. So if I asked you what you need most, is Jesus on that list? And it's not that these other things are not bad, or that these other things are bad things. That's not what we're saying. Jesus is not dismissing the crowd's need for these things, like food. In fact, he's so aware of their need for food that he multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed the 5,000. He knows that we have these needs. He cares about these needs. He doesn't look at your financial needs as unimportant. He doesn't look at the physical exhaustion that you will feel at the busyness of the holidays as though it's not real. The emotional stress that you have at wanting to create a memorable experience for your kids, Jesus doesn't just call that invalid. Or the relational toll of family, the longing for relationships to be repaired. He's not saying that's unfounded. He's not saying that these are not real needs, but that you are more needy than you could possibly know. The crowds came to Jesus looking for their needs to be met. And Jesus wanted them to see that they needed something much deeper than they even realized. The father and son, they were united in Jesus' coming to provide what we truly need. And third, the unity of father and son in saving. In verse 38, Jesus said that he came to do the will of the father. And then in verses 39 through 40, he tells us what the will of the father was. He says it actually two times. He repeats this idea just in different ways. In verse 39, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Then he says it again in verse 40, just with different language. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The parallel language at the beginning and end of each of these verses is important for us to see. In verse 39, it begins, this is the will of him who sent me. In verse 40, this is the will of my father. The end of verse 39 says, but I will raise it up on the last day. The end of verse 40, I will raise him up on the last day. You see the parallel there. In the middle though, it's different and it gives us some remarkable insight into our salvation. The father and son, they're unified. They're united in saving us. And here's how it happens. In verse 39, Jesus will not lose any that the father has given. 
And in verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So in verse 39, when we, what we understand about our salvation is God is responsible to call us and he gives us to the Son. And it is the Father's will that Jesus would secure the salvation of all whom he calls. And then in verse 40, we see that we are responsible to look upon the Son and believe. And it is the Father's will that Jesus would secure the salvation of all who believe. Our salvation is the result of both God's sovereign choice to call us, to give us to the Son, and Jesus to secure that salvation. It is also the result of our responsibility to look upon the Son and believe. And these might seem like conflicting ideas. Scholar and professor J.I. Packer calls this an antinomy, meaning that the Bible affirms two realities that we cannot fully reconcile in our minds always, but we can affirm that both are true because God says that they are right here. We may not be able to fully wrap our minds around how they can both be true, but God says that they are. And beneath this paradigm then eventually comes this question that we often ask, am I one of the ones that God has chosen? Am I one of the ones that he has called? Does God want me? And here's my answer to that question. If you want God to want you, then take that as an indication that he does and look to the son and believe. It is the father's will that Jesus would secure the salvation of all who believe. For all who would come, that Jesus would rescue and redeem, that he would raise us up on the last day. And as the bread of life, when we come to him, we will never hunger. If we believe in him, we shall never thirst. All our deepest needs will be met in the person of Jesus. And one of your deepest needs is to know that you are wanted. Author and pastor Timothy Keller wrote this, to be loved and not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything else. The family is meant to be a picture of this for us as humans. This is why the covenant of marriage is meant to be something we never break because this is how God loves us, fully known, fully loved. This is why parents are meant to be a picture of God's love for their kids and why the rejection of a child is so deeply painful because it makes us fear that God would reject us like that. However, this is the will of the Father, that Jesus would secure the salvation of all who would believe. The reality is that we fear the rejection of the Father because we know deep down that we deserve the rejection for, the re- for our rebellion against him. We act in ways that are unloving to our family We give in to addictions and desires of the flesh. We don't work for the peace and the justice that we say that we want in the world. And Jesus came to redeem that which was broken. It was the crowds who asked for miracles and bread. And it would be the crowds who cried for his death. And on the cross, Jesus would endure the rejection that we deserve. He would experience the consequence for our rebellion. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus came because the Father wanted to save us. 
And let me make something very clear to you right now. God didn't start wanting you after you looked at the Son and believed. God wanted you from the minute that sin entered the world. And he looked ahead and saw you here in 2022, and he wanted you. He sent Jesus into the world to secure the salvation of all who would believe through his death. The pain of this world can make us think that God doesn't want us. Billy's rejection by his father that I told you about earlier, the suffering and the pain of your own experiences, the failure that we feel at our own sin, they can all make us question whether God actually wants you. I know that it's hard to believe that he does. I struggle some days to believe that he does. And I can remember pleading with my mother until her death to believe that God wants us, that he wanted her. My mother and father, they made some decisions earlier in their, early in their relationship that my mother came to regret. Out of respect for them, I'm not going to share what those decisions were, but these decisions hung over her like a cloud. So when 14 years into their marriage, my younger sister died in a firearm accident, my mom thought that this was God punishing her for the decisions that she had made more than a decade earlier. And she did not believe that God wanted her. In all that pain, she turned to addictions. For her, it was alcohol and it was gambling, destructive addictions to her and to our family. But you should know that even if you medicate with more acceptable addictions like work or food, they will never soothe the pain that you feel at being unwanted, or at least feeling unwanted. My mother struggled to believe that God could want her. She lived in torment and it tortured her life. She died of cancer at the age of 54, and I can still remember pleading with her. Six months before she died, I was driving eastbound on I-94, about to head north on 280, just pleading with her to believe that God could love her. She couldn't believe it. She struggled to believe that God could forgive her for all that she had done, that through all of that rebellion in sin, how could God love her? I wanted so desperately for her to know that Jesus was enough that God wanted her, that through Christ, all her sins could be forgiven. My mother struggled to believe that she could be fully known and fully loved. And I don't know if she ever allowed herself to believe that God could love her through Christ. I'm hopeful that she did. And I can't plead with her anymore, but I can with you right now. And we can with our neighbors and our family Here's my appeal to you that as you begin this Advent season, embrace the reality that God wants you, that he desires you enough to send Jesus into the world to die for you. You might feel your need right now. You might feel the financial, emotional, physical, relational needs, and they're real. There's no need to deny those. But in fact, you are far more needy than you could possibly know. And what you need more than anything else is to know that you are loved by the Father, that you are wanted and you are pursued, that Jesus came into the world because God desires your salvation. So look to the Son. Believe that the death of Christ was done on your behalf and that you can be saved. See, you are more needy than you could possibly know. And God wants you more than you would dare to dream. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. 
If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.